up, everyone? Paul Clark here. Sup, Paul. November 22nd, 2022. 11, 22, 22. This is the 51st episode of the Sup, Paul podcast. In this episode, we're talking with Sean Jansen. He's currently on an expedition, a paddleboarding expedition down the entire thousand mile coastline of the Sea of Cortez in Baja. Whoa. <laughs> We're talking about the physical and psychological challenges for such a trip. Without further ado, here's Sean. There we are. All right. How you doing, Bob? As my audience, some of my audience may know, I before becoming a paddleboarder, I was a long-distance sea kayaker, including paddling the full length of the Sea of Cortez, about a thousand miles, twice. I've always wondered if it's possible to do it on a paddleboard. Well, sir, can you answer that question? <laughs> welcome to uh, welcome to the podcast, Sean Jansen. You know, um, yes, it's very possible. And as you know, I, I was a fan of Paul, obviously well before this uh, podcast even happened, but um, I was aware of him because you paddled from, what was it, 320 miles from Santa Rosalia to La Paz? About that, it was a 16-day paddle. I think uh, it's for me, it's hard to actually gauge the mileage on the Sea of Cortez. Uh, I'm going to say that from about Santa uh, San Felipe to Cabos is about a thousand miles. So the section on a paddleboard that I did from Santa Rosalia to La Paz was around that 300, 320 or so miles, which took me about 16 days to do it, averaging uh, a very laborious 20 miles a day on a 12.6 inflatable paddleboard. You're yeah. uh, you're taking a break from an expedition that you're currently on, paddling the entire length on the on the Sea of Cortez. So amazing, amazing. Yeah, it's. Um, I'm not gonna lie. This is day one of my break, and I am going back and forth between telling myself that I made the responsible decision to hit the pause button. The trip is not over. So I paddled from San Felipe, which is up north near the Colorado River Delta, and the closest real access point for me personally to start my trip. Um, and I paddled all the way to Santa Rosalia. My watch, which has been tracking my data and mileage, says I've paddled 397 miles. So, I mean, it's not quite halfway, but if you look at the state of the two states and the peninsula of Baja on a map, it, it literally looks like I'm halfway. But yeah, I'm torn because one, this is the first expedition I've ever literally hit the pause button. Um, usually, you know, people don't know me, but I'm someone that when I put my head to something, I become the most possessed human and I will see it through and I will finish it. But this trip has been really humbling because, uh, mother nature is showing me who's in charge. And I, not that I ever doubted that, but it's, it's a different experience to see it firsthand. But like I said, I'm kind of torn between, did I make the right decision by hitting the pause button? understanding that the winter winds of, of Baja that we that we kind of know about the place for anyone that's gone down there have clearly kicked in a little earlier than normal um, and, or am I just getting completely lost in my own head accepting and cowering away in the fear that is a solo expedition that those of us that have done those know and just ultimately being a scared weirdo you know and just so I'm battling that that thing in my head and today is day one of the pause you know I flew home yesterday and um it's it's weird you know I'm still in expedition mode you know I'm thinking about Baja I'm still looking at the wind charts I'm you know I'm still 100% into the trip um but you know I've also 
have had support to come home and I'm trying to stay positive of being like, okay, this is a luxury. You get to come home, you get to upload all the photos that you've taken. You get to write the first half of the story. I get to share what I want to share. And then when I see the window that mother nature wants me to grant me access again, I can go back whenever I please, but it is bittersweet. Like I go between the depression of, of making that decision to being like, okay, this might be the smart decision to do, you know? So well, you, re you, you reached out to me uh, last week or so. You'd been in yeah. Santa Rosalia for a, a while. And we're going to talk a little bit about the, the Baja landscape and the geography and the, and the weather and the, the, the better times to paddle. But Santa Rosalia is not the most charming of towns. Most <laughs> tourists don't know Santa Rosalia for, uh, for a variety of reasons. If they do know it, they know it's the first town that you drive on the highway from, say, California, drive all the way down to Baja, and it's really the first town that you meet on the Sea of Cortez. Literally. Really, that's its 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 greatest distinction. It has some history, it has some dubious history, but it's not the prettiest of towns. It's not the prettiest of water areas. It's a really depressing place. I had a breakdown, an emotional breakdown there, and it sounds like you just got beat from the wind and paused there for a little bit. You reached out to me because I have some experience down there. You're like, so what do I do now? Uh, and I'm glad you paused. You, you're getting uh, a refresher. You stored your gear, obviously. And you, had, you went back home for a little bit through the holidays so that uh, when you go back down to Baja and finish the trip, you'll be, I think, much more rejuvenated and much more uh, capable of having a sane trip. <laughs> you know, it, it's... You, you hit it, you hit the nail on the head. I've actually, um, you know, I've reached out to a few people. You were one of them that I absolutely needed to talk to because I knew you had firsthand experience with this coastline on multiple trips. Um, and I've been going to Baja for 17 years on surfing trips. So I'm aware of the geography. I was, but you know, the expectations for this trip, um, expectations are something I really struggle with. And I don't know if it's just me personally, but I am, you know, I'm trying to tell myself that the best expectations for anything in life are to not have any, but that's so easy to say compared to do. But, um, you know, it's just, I've had a lot of support to come back and just be like, it's okay. You know, Baja's not going anywhere. The drawback with why I'm maybe torn about hitting the pause button is I'm doing this trip to raise awareness for the critically endangered Vaquita porpoise. Now this porpoise only lives in the Gulf of California, which is the Sea of Cortez. And um, there's only 10 of them left in the wild. So it's like, not that my trip necessarily is going to have an, an extreme impact on that species well-being, but it could. And so that is kind of something that's like, I should just put my head down and keep going for that little porpoise. But Mother Nature is not letting me do that. And, um, but, it, but it is amazing to have your support to tell me it's okay to hit the pause button, to have family telling me to hit the pause button and you know I've, I've reached out to a few people a few Baja legends that have even helped me when I was down there one of the places that, the place I'm storing my board the guy that I'm storing the board with he has walked the entire Baja Peninsula with a donkey and it took him six months exactly you know these legends and he was telling me is like Sean Baja is in charge man like you gotta you got to listen to her and, and that's what I'm doing. And it, but it, what I'm saying is just, it's amazing the support I'm actually having to just, it's okay to hit the pause button on an expedition. So it's cool. 
Well, let's talk about a little bit about expeditions. Let's talk about solo expeditions, the psychology, the physiology of that, the, the, the logistics of, of paddling solo. And let me just, you know, say to you and everybody who's uh, considering a multi-day expedition, whether it be on the water, on a board, in a kayak, in the mountains, on skis or climbing, expeditions require one expectation, coming back safely. Uh, and it's, 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 it's a narcissist who believes that they could accomplish everything as they planned it out. Nature and the environments, the reason why we go into these wild places is because it's unpredictable. And in Baja in particular, the wind changes, the sea changes, the land changes, the, the mood of the locals change and being able to adjust to that heartbeat of a wild place means that you're going to be taking zero days. It means that you're even going to store your board and fly home and recharge those batteries. Fortunately, we have the, the luxury to do that so that we can have that expect, meet that expectation of coming home safely. If a person's planning on being an expedition, paddler, climber, whatever, they're expecting to fail a lot. <laughs> and I'm not saying that you're failing by any means. I'm saying you're succeeding because you were able to, to process that and come back down to the reality of, hey, I have, all, I have all winter, essentially, to be down there. Why force it in a, in a, in a limited amount of time? No, and um, it's amazing to hear you say that. And the, the best analogy I can give for what this trip is and the pause button that I'm reflecting on and trying to stay positive about is I reflect back to mountaineering. Now I'm not an alpinist. I'm not someone who climbs mountains, but every alpinist you meet out there says the summit is when you, when you get back down, it's not getting to the top. Sure. You get to the top. That's cool. You get to the top of Everest. Awesome. You still have to get back down to be able to be like, yeah, I did it. Cause if you just get to the top, that's not, that's the anti summit in a way you have to get all the way back down. And so what I'm trying to tell myself is like, I had so many little mishaps in that first half of that paddle that have made me seriously just go, oh my, like, I didn't expect none of what, I expected the zero days, of course, because I knew this event called El Norte was going to happen. And that event is these 20 to 40 knot winds that just ripped down the coast. And, um, you know, but like the, the small things that I encountered that made me hit the pause button. Like one example is I had to walk seven miles to get food because I ran out of food, <laughs> you know, and I, and walking is a tall statement. It, it took me seven hours to walk seven miles. Like where, through... where was that? Where did you walk in Northern Baja to get food from the coast? So what happened was there was this really, really long stretch. It was about a 200 mile stretch with very little food. There was a, a fish camp where I did get a little bit of food. But, you know, and I planned for it. I bought so much food that it was actually ridiculous. Like I had to put food outside of a container in my dry bag, which a mouse decided to chew, chew a hole through. Now, if you have a hole in your dry bag, that's a big problem because your stuff's going to get wet. So that's Yeah, you're putting your dry bag on your deck. It's not like it's secured in a kayak. Precisely. And you have your sleeping bag in there. If your sleeping bag gets wet, like people don't understand Baja is a desert, but in winter – those temperatures and at overnight can drop to almost freezing. So like if your sleeping bag is wet, you're that's hypothermia conversation. But the point being is I had, I was making it to where I had to stop, which is 
Santa Rosalia where I didn't have to stop, but I decided to hit the pause button and I could see Santa Rosalia. It is 12 miles down the coast. It's waving at me. I even have the cell service from the cell tower at Santa Rosalia. I could see it. But the problem was, is I looked at the forecast and that day I had to um, emergency beach all my kit because there was four foot waves coming in, wind waves. These aren't long period, beautiful, groomed, calm swells. No, 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 no. This is hell on earth. And it's just, you know, white caps out to sea. And I'm like, frick, I have to get to shore. So I get to shore and I'm like, all right, I'll wait it out. I have, I have maybe a half a day's worth of food because at this point I was going 17 days without any resupply. So I had to bring 17 days worth of food, 17 days worth of water, which is a whole different conversation because anyone (laughs) that doesn't know Baja, there's no fresh water in Baja. So luckily I have a saltwater pump and the water was not an issue for me, but food was. I was already rationing my food for 10 days at that point. So I was eating a thousand calories a day while burning 3000. So I was losing weight. And when I got to the hotel room and looked at myself in the mirror i was just emaciated who's the point the the point being though is like i I had emergency beach my board and then i look at the forecast and it's five days of this strong 30 to 40 knot winds and it's not like what people don't understand about these winds is like you can't just wake up at 5 a.m and expect it to be glassy and then the winds kick up in the afternoon these winds are 24 hours long and so that was the drawback and so i filled up one of my dry bags with all my necessary gear that was important to me, like camera, passport, money, water, of course, and the half a day's worth of food, which turned out to be two tortillas and an orange, by the way. Um, And I decided to start walking. And I knew Santa Rosalia, what we haven't touched about about the town, is it's a mining town. So like Paul said, it's not a scenic, gorgeous, Sia Cortez type of town like Mulahe or Cabo, et cetera. But um, I had to walk through some tough terrain and walking on the beach. It's not, it wasn't a beach. It was a beach for about one mile. And then it turned into a cliffy cactus, spiny snake, scorpion infested nightmare from hell, which I actually, I can't believe I'm saying this. I enjoyed the walk. It was actually really cool. Um, But it was, I hate the word adventure because I feel like it's been so overused. Yvonne Chouinard said it best. Adventure is when stuff goes wrong. And I just felt like my walk and everything up to that point to get to to town to get food was nothing but an adventure. It was just, it was incredible. But that was, that was just one of the many mishaps that led me to get to that hotel room where I finally got Wi-Fi. And then I looked at the forecast again, and it was just seven days of green and yellow charts on windy.com that I'm just like... And as you and I talked about, there were points just south of me that you kind of need a really good forecast to get around them. And people die in the sea on sailboats. So what does that mean for kayaks or a weirdo like me that's trying to stand a paddle the whole coastline? (laughs) So it's, you know, I, I'm relieved that I'm sitting here talking about it and, and all that. But yes, there's a part of me already that feels like I should have just you know, waited it out. Mother nature is mother nature. And imagine if we did this in the seventies, they didn't have forecasts back then. And here we are just being spoiled rotten with complaining about the forecast, you know, but that's just one of the many, many stories and many mishaps. But the point of the whole thing is just like, this is a long expedition. So you don't want to rush into a judgment for one week when you know you have another month or two down the road before you get to your. 
whoops, whoops. Before, uh, <laughs> look at those mishaps. Get, <laughs> before you get to your final goal, and oh, technology is another mishap. Don't get me started. <laughs> but yeah, it's just you know, I'm I feel lucky that I can hit the pause button, and it's just me and time for me to meditate on the process and. And like you said, I, I'm very lucky with my employment and that I don't, I don't have to work till May. So um, that's what I'm going to do. Well, I'm, I'm glad you have that, uh, that leisure, that openness to be able to do the incomplete thing. You did have, uh, you weren't saying it, but I did have the sense that you were thinking that you were going to quit. Like when you were in Santa Rosalia, do I just pack things up and head home or whatever? So I'm glad you are on the on the pause button and still have half the coast to do this winter. You're raising awareness for what turtle? Oh, it's not a turtle. It's a porpoise. It's called ah. the vaquita. V as in, uh, oh gosh. So vaquita actually in Spanish means little cow. But it's not a it's not a cow. It's it's a little porpoise. It's about four feet long, and there's only about ten of them left in the wild, and they only live in the upper Gulf of uh, California or the upper part of Sea Cortez. Okay. And the reason they're going extinct is because of the illegal fishery of the Totoaba and the nets they use for to catch those fish, and vaquitos, unfortunately, a bycatch. But that's that the main goal of it. Selfishly, sure, I want to be that person to paddle down. The Sea of Cortez, I want to camp on some of the most beautiful beaches on the planet. I want to take pictures. I want to write about it. And, yeah, I brought my fly rod. Like, I'm a huge fly fisherman. And so I want to catch a Dorado on a fly rod or a rooster fish on a fly rod, you know. So it's there's these multi multiple prong aspects that I'm working on. And then the third prong is I'm actually working with a nonprofit um, organization called Five Gyres, and they're raising awareness for plastic pollution. Mm. And they're relying on me to document the plastic that I find on the beaches of the Sea of Cortez and trying to see if they are related to the big Pacific garbage patch <sighs> or if they're their own little deal. Uh, the, the plastic waste in Baja is, is, uh, is a very noticeable part of any type of experience down there, whether you're just a tourist or if you're expeditioning, uh, plastic waste is present in the water and on the land. That, yeah. That's certainly a, a depressing uh, part of the entire experience. But locals reuse that plastic, which is they awesome. Uh, their fishing rigs are, you know, repurposed Coca-Cola bottles. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Fishermen are classic, you know, they definitely live by the saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, you know, and, you know, a lot of their buoys that they use to hang their nets are just two liter things of Coca-Cola, you know, it's classic. Um, and, you know, Mexican people, and, and what I mean by the trash that I'm trying to raise awareness for, most of the trash, unfortunately, that I find on those beaches, they are local. They're not like washed in from Japan or China or even the United States for that matter. But it's like... Um, you know, they're just, they're just such incredible people. And I, I don't fault any of that. It's, it's just, it's just part of the world we live in. You go to any, you go to a remote beach in the South Pacific, you're, it's not going to be plastic free, unfortunately. And that's, that's a conversation for another day, obviously we're, but you know, that's just, that's my three prong endeavor is to raise awareness for the vaquitas, the sole purpose. The second purpose is to document the garbage that I see and report it to see if we can find a solution for that with that, with those two organizations. And then, the third reason is, yeah, selfishly, I, I love Baja so much. And this is just an awesome way for me to experience that coastline that I don't get to see because, as you know, the roads really don't follow the Sea of Cortez. And there are incredible sections of coastline that are as remote as you ever want to be. 
I spent a lot of time being butt naked because uh, there's no one around. <laughs> and going, if, if the audience doesn't know much about Baja, they probably don't know really anything about northern Baja, especially the, the Sea of Cortez side. There are very few roads. There, there are some fishing camps. There are some small communities, like in the Bay of L.A. and uh, Gonzaga Bay. But mostly it's remote. You are out there by yourself. And there are very few exceptions where it's lava rock, sharp rocks, extreme tidal beaches where you have slimy rocks that you have to carry your gear over. You've gone already through the most dehumanizing section of that Sea of Cortez coast. So well done. Thank um, you. With the, the age of social media, we could have a pretty good idea who has done these type of expeditions. People post their, their things. When I went there as a sea kayaker, I didn't know anything about Baja. I just knew that I had the winter off. I was a kayak guide in Alaska. I'm like, what am I going to do? I guess I'm going to bring my boat down, my 19-foot sea kayak down to Baja. I actually started on mainland Mexico, crossed the Rio, uh, the Colorado uh, Rio, basically. Bad. It wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't. That, that'll be a, for another story. I was published in uh, this uh, Sea Kayak magazine, which no longer exists, I don't believe, about that part of the trip, that 100 miles wow. from El Golfo to uh, San Felipe. A crazy story. All I had to prepare for that trip was my willingness to do it, mm. my, my experience as a kayaker and as a mountaineer, so light and fast. But I brought a lonely planet travel Baja guidebook. So I knew all where the hotels were in Cabo. I knew where all the hotels were in wherever, but I didn't know anything about the Sea of Cortez, let alone that that death zone of the, the Gulf of uh, the, 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 what was the, the Colorado River drainage is now just a sandbar. But anyway, I didn't have any preparation. And as far as I know, I was the first person who knows to sea Probably. kayak the entire length. But paddle boarding, when I did that 300-ish mile section about four years ago, I don't think many people have paddled that. What have you been finding? Who have you been finding who have done these expeditions? Or are there anybody? You know, the thing with stand-up paddling is, you know, you and I both know it's, it's one of the fastest growing sports on the planet. So expeditions are starting to happen more frequently. Although I think the expeditions are a slower start. It started off with just surfing and then kind of casual paddling. My neighbor got me into Santa paddling back in 2011, 2012, because he was he would race him. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing with these expeditions is we're kind of just riding the coattails of sea kayakers. Sea kayakers were the original ones that were like they started doing these expeditions. But then I started personally seeing that you could totally do stuff on a stand up paddleboard. Like there are these dry bags that several companies make now that you could strap on your board and you can just disappear. Now, you know, as you and I have talked, sea kayak versus stand up paddling, let's be real. A sea kayak is far more efficient with absolutely everything. They can handle the waves better. You're more aerodynamic. You can go f farther and faster. Um, where stand up paddling, you know, you're a sail. If there's any wind, you are screwed. <laughs> Like people, what people don't understand about the Baja trip is that El Norte wind that's 20 to 40 knots. It is a tailwind. Don't get me wrong in a way. Um, it's not a perfect tailwind, but, but, but 
it comes with four to five foot waves. You're kind of at an angle, so your nose is burying or your tail is burying. And I did capsize once, and I thought I was going to die. You know, I, I actually, I thought my trip was done. And you want to talk about a walk? I was going to have to walk 20, 30 miles to get help at that point. And luckily, I was able to strap my stuff on, and it worked. But to answer your question, as far as I know, you are the only person I've ever seen at least published online that has paddled some of the Baja coastline on a stand-up. Um, and so to my knowledge, I believe I might be the first person to paddle from San Felipe to Santa Rosalia and maybe the first person to even consider paddling the whole coastline. I think you, you and I talked, you absolutely have considered paddling the whole coastline. Um, and you, I fully support you if you ever try to, like I would help you in any way I could if you, if you decide to do it. Um, but you know, it's just, I've always lived by the motto. It's just like, I, I don't see why it can't be done. You know, maybe it'll, it'll, it'll take longer. That's fine. You know, but it, it's totally doable. It just takes more work. And the drawback with stand up again versus sea kayak is sea kayaks are made out of either a hard plastic or, you know, some are fiberglass or wood, but the ones that are hard plastic, it is so much easier to board, to beach your stuff and unload. With my fiberglass, or I think my, my board's actually epoxy, it is awful. And you and, and, and what you mentioned, you know, like what people need to understand about this Baja trip is like, I don't just rock up to a beautiful white sand beach, really easy to mellow cruise up to the beach. You know, no, <laughs> it is rocky. It is gnarly. I have to take four to five trips back and forth from my board to the beach to unload my stuff. And the other side of a stand-up versus a kayak is you have a fin. That fin, I've already broken one on this trip. And luckily, I had a spare. So it's just everything is harder. But the benefits of the stand-up is just like you're above everything. You could see the bottom. Like I saw sea turtles cruise right underneath me, dolphins, you name it. But it's just, um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, no one has done this on a stand-up. And if anyone has, please reach out to Paul or I. I would love to have a discussion with you because it's – it's an awesome, awesome thing. One of the things that I always talk about paddleboarding when a kayaker says that, you know, they're in a superior craft or a raft on the river says they're in a superior craft or a motorboat, whatever. What I do like about paddleboarding is that it's just unique to itself. Uh, stand up means that you have the option of standing up, unlike a kayak. You could sit, kneel, downward dog. And on an expedition, being able to jump off your board to swim yeah. Uh, to rest, to relax, to even take a nap, potentially, not in El Norte winds, but the, the versatility of changing your position. When I was doing these 30-plus-mile-a-day, all-day uh, events in, on the Sea of Cortez, you're in a boat. You're, sit there, you're sitting there. Your legs are atrophying, and your back is sore. On a board, you could just change that direction. How are you outfitting? What does your outfitting look like? And what are you going to be changing as you uh, advance down the Sea of Cortez? Uh, that's, that's a great question. And that's probably been at the forefront of my mind for this second part is like, how do I make it more efficient? And I, um, so my outfit's a bit complicated. So what I have is I have two dry bags. One's in front of me, one's behind me, and I have a big five gallon thing of water. And as you can see in the picture from this live, you know, feed, you know, it's, it's a mouthful. It really is. It's a lot of, for lack of a better word, it's a lot of crap, but it's necessary. So what I have is I have a big 115 liter um, seal line dry bag up front. And in that dry bag, I have my sleeping bag, my tent, 
um, sleeping pad. I have my food in that one. And then another big part of the story is I had to bring, um, I have a big solar panel and that's how I've been charging mm. my watch, mm. my GPS, my cell phone, and um, ultimately, of course, my um, DSLR digital camera. The second dry bag is the one that's behind me. It's a 60 liter from Mustang Survival. And in there, I want to say that's where my toys are. So that's where my fly reels are. That's where, um, you know, like the fly fishing equipment, that is where my little pocket stove is for coffee. That is where my swim fins, snorkel and mask are, um, stuff like that. My water housing for my camera. Um, but then, and then in front of that dry bag, still behind me, but in front of that dry bag is my five gallon um, Reliance hard um, water jug. Now, I'm not really going to change that up. That system is still working for me. It still worked great for me. So I'm going to keep it like that. But in the 60 liter bag, I'm going to get rid of a few things. One of those things are the swim fins. I haven't even used them. The snorkel and mask, I'm still flipping the coin. Um, I don't know. Like there, I feel like I'm going to get to a part where I wish I had it, but like 90% of this trip, I'm not using it. So it's like, what do you do? You know, or maybe, maybe if I get to an epic area, I'll just go to like a little touristy place and rent one for the day or something. You know, I don't, I don't know. So I'm definitely going to reconsider that option. Um, but I think that's about it. You know, it's like, I, I'm very dumbfounded at how efficient I was able to get my stuff in and get it going. Um, but that, that's a really good question. I think as of right now, and again, it's only day one of just fully, recapping all this but um you know i had my food down i i did have my food dialed despite the fact running out of it um <laughs> i did have my clothing dialed like i when i was paddling i would have a long pair of pants but they're sun pants they're they're like fishing pants they're like really like like kind of swim trunk material and then i had a sun shirt which is a long sleeve shirt with a hood a hat i had nrs gloves and i actually have these pair of columbia water shoes that i wore and the, and the main reason I wore all that is for sun protection. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with anything else. And, you know, you could barely tell from our Instagram live here, but I am so tan. It's insane. <laughs> you know, my aunt and I, who I'm staying with here, like she's, she's 100% Italian and just so proud of how tan she is. And I came back and she's like, there's no way you're tanner than me. That's not fair. Um, <laughs> but it's just, the sun is brutal down there. And luckily I'm standing here without having a single sunburn. But I don't think I'm going to change anything. You know, before the trip, I thought about bringing a big old tarp, and I'm glad I didn't, just for, for shade. Um, I think the one serious thing I will consider is um, buying myself a backup paddle that's worthy of paddling. So mm -hmm. what I did is I did have a backup paddle, but in really rough conditions, I lost it. And I felt really bad because I littered that, and that sucks. But, um, you know, there are sections of – if you break your paddle down there, like – you're screwed. You can't just knee paddle and expect to get places with that kind of kit. You can't. So I will consider a really nice um, paddle. I did spend a lot of money for the paddle I have, and that's a quick blade. Um, but I, I might consider buying another one just because that thing has been amazing, super lightweight. And you want to talk about durable. Like I haven't doubted it once, but all it takes is one flip and your weight and leverage and that's it, you know? So, but other than that, I I'm dialed, man. I'm pretty good. Um, with my water pump, I'm going to consider more dried foods, especially for backup stuff, like having freeze dried foods or even MREs or something. Mm -hmm. 
especially on like an El Norte day when I'm beached, I can just pump seawater and I can make pasta. So a lot of my food has just been cold, dry, mm-hmm. non-cookable food. Mm-hmm. So a lot of tortillas and beans and stuff like that, mm-hmm. which I'm not complaining because I love Mexican food. But to have that option, that's definitely something I'm going to consider for sure. Have you been eating fish along the way? I know that uh, you do have your, your fly fishing equipment. Yeah. Um, no. And I'm making a point not to eat seafood because of what I'm working for with that porpoise. Mm. Of course, that day I had to walk into town. If I was unable to do that, this is survival mode. I will eat whatever I have to. And anyone that knows me, though, this is going to sound weird. I actually don't really enjoy seafood. It's not mm. something I go to a restaurant and order. It's it's just not me, you know, but in a life or death situation, like, let's be real. I'm going to eat my phone. Um, yeah, that uh, that totally makes sense. That just, totally makes sense. Um, I'm not you a... You just got to do what you got to do. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I did... I'm not a fisherman. Anybody who knows me definitely knows I'm not a fisherman. But when I was kayaking, I did bring a trolling setup. And uh, about an hour before where I anticipated landing for the night, I would troll. And I uh, got a variety of things. Uh, a lot of rockfish, uh, bonita. And that, that was my protein along the way. Almost every day for at least my first trip, I was eating, I was eating fish along the way and just uh, grilling it on the, the beach with my rice and my beans uh, and would resupply Perfect. in the small little Tiennas that are every five or six or seven days apart. We'd get little Mexican cookies and uh, cheese, uh, a lot of goat cheese in Baja and avocados you know the avocados are uh, abundant there which is a, a very nice thing and a magical wonderful high fat oh my god that's gasoline for for us you know just to zip down the coast and yeah mexican food is my favorite food on the planet so i i laughed because i got home and then the first thing i did is i went to my local mexican food restaurant up here and it's like sean you could go eat pizza or something it's like no it's mexican food I'm still in Mexican mode. Yeah, you're still so. in the, the zone. Yeah, you're, you're taking a pause from an expedition to reconsider, to reevaluate, let the weather go. Normally, November, for me, the end of October through the middle of December is the best time to be on the Sea of Cortez as an expedition. Uh, for the most part, you're in calmer water than uh, the, the typical wintertime El Norte is. But it sounds like you've just been day after day after day of these El Nortes that are unseasoned. So you, yeah, you, you're pretty stoked, I have to tell you. Like, I wish I had the opportunity to get on a plane and fly back or, or whatever when I was doing my expedition. Like, I was from top to bottom committed, and that's what I had. There, was, there were really no other options for me. And that led to some problems, psychological problems. I didn't like what I was doing. For most of the time on all of my trips, I didn't enjoy what I was doing. Day after day after day of the same repetitive labor, a stockbroker who sees their, their small portfolio grow, grow, and grow. It's the same thing. You can see about 30 miles down the coast there at the most. And me in a kayak averaging 30 miles a day. So I'd wake up and I would see 30 miles down the coast at this like little blurry landmark that I would watch slowly grow every day. That was horrible for me. Primarily because by the time that that landmark 
which is a big rock or point or, or a building or whatever it might be, as it becomes more in focus, the rest of the coast starts to, to make itself known too. So you see all that other terrain that I still have to go. Day after day, the same scenery, the same work, the same labor, the same stress with one person to keep you company. A person who I ended up hating myself when you're on a solo expedition where you have just your head nagging you telling you to do stupid things like paddle at night telling you to do stupid things like you know why don't you paddle all day in the sun naked (laughs) stupid things and saying things and often debating like I wanted to write about my sea kayaking adventures, but by the time I got to the Cabo area on my first uh, two-month paddleboard or uh, kayak trip down there, the last thing I wanted to do is celebrate my achievements because I hated myself. So that you're able to take this break, reevaluate your gear, spend time with family, uh, whatever it might be. Like, yeah, companionship is underrated. <laughs> Sean, I'm going to interrupt you. Are you. Is your mic on? I think it might be a little bit muted. There we go. Oh, is that better? Yeah, it is. So I, I'm like holding my phone because I almost, I'm about to run out of batteries. And I think my finger's probably blocking it. But no, you were, um, you were my beacon in my storm at that point. You know, I called you from this little bluff overlooking Santa Rosalia where I'd already been there for five days after having walked through the desert to get to that town, to get food, to get my board. And, and then I'm still looking at a seven-day forecast of nothing but bright yellow orange dots going down the Sea of Cortez, which meant 30 knot winds. And um, I was so in my head at that point, as you know, it's just like when you do these solo adventures, you know, you're a two-faced monster. There's part of you that's so inspired and just being like, I, you're on top of the world. You're doing something no one's done. You're doing something you've never done. You're pushing your own – your your own discomfort button and you're trying to grow yourself and and you are but then there's the other side of it. it's like yeah but sean it's only a two-hour flight direct flight from this location you can go home go surfing go to your perfect little coffee shop you know like sit over the bluff and just listen to the radio and it's just you know and i that's where i'm torn because it's like that side of me in a way one because i that's what i decided to do was go home and and do that but you know it's just these solo expeditions they they strip you bare and there's no guidebook on how to handle that scenario because there's so few people that do solo expeditions and there's so many people that are so afraid to do things on their own because no one else wants to do them with you and and the drum beat that i've been dancing to my whole life essentially is just simply because no one wants to go with you on these trips never meant you shouldn't go it's just you have to you have to meditate on the process, you know, feel there's a meditation practice I've been doing that it kind of goes, it's like you think in your mind that you can do something and you feel in your heart that it's possible. The only thing left is to go and do it. So it's just, but obviously it's easier said than done. And here I am sitting in cozy Southern California. Um, But I'm starting to realize that 
this is a luxury that I even get to go home. I get to leave my, and what I want everyone to know and what I want even myself to know is the trip's not over. It is paused. My gear is still down there. I came back with only a carry on bag. Everything is down there. And so it's just, I'm lucky that I have that luxury. Um, but it's just, you know, even sitting here, the mental, the mental side of it is still knocking at your door. I still go from like, yes, I'm relieved I'm here. I'm lucky. I'm really looking forward to plugging my camera into my computer and start looking at the images that I've worked really hard to take and get all the journal entries down on a Word document so I can start sending, sending them in and getting people to read them. And then there's the other side of it. That's like, Sean, you should have just bought 35 days worth of food and sat on a beach for five days waiting for the wind to calm. But you know, I was baffled when I when I told you it took me 36 days to get to Santa Rosalia. You're like, dude, I paddled the whole coastline in 30 days one time. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> but it was in a, a, a seasonable period. It was okay. in November without El Norte. So literally, I had no El Norte. I had, I had a, a following breeze for most of it. Wow. With the exception, with the exception of probably where you walked, uh, uh, north of uh, Santa Rosalia, I had, I went, I paddled, uh, you know, I was basically point, I was paddling uh, point A to point B. Uh, and I would often like avoid like little bays and things like that. I'm a terrestrial guy. I don't kayak or paddle on a board because I like open water. I like the coast. I like the trees. I like rivers because they're narrow. I like to see both sides and touch land. So going from point A to point B was never my comfort zone because all of a sudden I'd just be completely exposed. But in one of these areas north of Santa Rosalia, the, uh, an offshore wind was just blowing hard down in El Rorio. And like you said, if you lose a paddle, like there's no hand paddling out there, you're going out to sea. So I spent well over an hour just keeping the, the, uh, the, the tip of the kayak, the 19 foot kayak that I had at the time with double blades, just giving her, giving her all I had to stay put. Yeah. And I wouldn't have been able to do that on a paddleboard. Uh, it certainly would have capsized. There was a hammerhead shark fin. Hammerhead sharks are pretty docile relative to humans, but you don't want to be just giving her and there's a shark swimming around you. Yep. So I basically, I was teary. My hand opened up. I was lacerated when I finally got to Santa Rosalia. I'm like, screw this. I quit. I'm done. I have to go get my hand, have surgery on my hand. I had to just like chill out. But I was in the middle of a expedition that I didn't have a backup plan for. I had to continue on. So after a day of just resting and having a zero day and getting my hand lanced. I put a rubber glove on. I had clear weather. Like supposedly I had clear weather. Like you said, I didn't have the, 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 the data then. Uh, and then just continued on my sea kayaking adventure. And uh, by day, I think it took me 28 days. I was done. I sold my boat in Loreto and the person who bought it picked it up in Santa in Cabo San Lucas. And I never kayaked again two middle fingers in the air with that sport so that you're able to just like chill out a little bit and reassess. I think you're going to be a paddleboarder for longer than I, <laughs> it, it, you know, again, it's just like, I need to hear stuff like that. Cause it's like when you're by yourself, you get in your head and your head doesn't tell you stuff like that. Sometimes, you know, you try to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to say positive things to me. It's like, I would love to meet that person because mm -hmm. there's no way there's not negative thoughts in that person's head still. 
Oh, yeah. So it's it's relieving to hear that from people. And I've gotten a few messages where I, I haven't publicly said I hit the pause button yet on this trip or where I even am. Yeah, nobody's watching this. Don't worry. No, I know. Um, <laughs> no, but it's just but to, to hear that from the people I've reached out to where I'm like, hey, by the way, I, I, I did hit the pause button. It's it's been a breath of fresh air because it makes me feel less guilty about what I'm doing. And um, and ultimately, it's just it's a luxury. You know, it, I feel relieved and I feel grateful and, you know, the amount of generosity I've gotten down there has been unbelievable. I can't, whether it's from a local fisherman giving me that orange 45, 50 miles north of Santa Rosalia before I ran out of food to the guy that, you know, Michael um, Young Husband is his name. He's the guy that walked from Tecate, mm -hmm. which is right on the border, almost to San Diego, all the way down to Cabo with his donkey named Don K. You know, 1,147 miles, and he walked that whole thing down the spine of Baja to the Pacific Coast all the way down. And he's letting me – he has a house in the Red O, and he's letting me store my board there. for. Oh, that's where it free. is. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Yeah, so, you know, and the benefit of me coming back down now is I'm going to have my car, and the plan for, for part two is I'm going to drive to Cabo, leave my car in a storage facility in Cabo San Lucas, take a bus up to Loretto, and then have him drive me. Michael Young, um, husband, with all my gear up to Santa Rosalia to start Chapter 2, which, you know, I'm going to keep an eye on all the forecasting and everything, but that could happen, I'm hoping, as early as February. Um, oh, okay, so you're going to take yeah, a couple months off. I might sit this part out a little bit, just because I know December and January, you know, people are telling me those are like the windiest months kind of thing, um, at least the second part of Jan uh, December through, you know, early February kind of thing, but who knows, you know, like I, I also know that in the middle of February, you can have glorious days. So, you know, it all just comes down to what, um, you know, and there might be a part of me where I'm here for a couple of weeks and I'm just like, screw this. I'm going back before Christmas. I have no idea yet. But what I do know is that I'm possessed. Like the trip is not over. I will finish this thing. And well, let's stay, let's stay in, in contact. Uh, I may uh, tag along with you, at least for the, the Loretta please. section. As you and I have discussed, you know, it's just like the solo, the solo aspect of these trips can be absolutely glorious, but it can be shattering, you know, and so to have to have a partner on board, it makes decisions, I think, a little easier. And the, the crazy thing about this is I don't even know what a shared expedition is like. Everything I've done has been solo. So <laughs> everything, you know, like I've had girlfriends that will go car camping and stuff, but like, there's no way take a girlfriend on a paddle trip like this unless she was like so adamant about wanting to go and it, but it's like I, I don't know what a shared expedition is like I've never been on one <laughs> and that's like we're, we're in the same boat in that sense of like okay who's gonna just say take two months off and go paddle with me who's gonna you know climb uh, this weird mountain with me you don't wait you just go uh, yeah. Even your loved ones are like well that's great I'll do that for the weekend but I'm not gonna train or whatever it is to you know do what you're possessed about, what you're obsessed about. So yeah, you just end up going solo. Uh, so yeah, let's, let's stay in, in contact. That might be interesting. Uh, going back to the solo thing too, whenever I travel in Baja, people are saying to me, be cautious. You know, Baja is dangerous. Every place is dangerous. Asheville, North Carolina is dangerous. Uh, Calgary, uh, Alberta is dangerous. Every place is dangerous. You can get schmucked by a bus just crossing the street. Uh, but what I found dangerous in Baja was me as a solo paddler. Like I was just a danger to myself. Like I, the, the fishermen that you meet along the way, 
sketchy for sure. Uh, they're, they're doing illegal things as far as their fishing practices or whatever goes, but they will make you breakfast. You know, and that, the, 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 the fisherman that gave me that orange about 45 miles north before I started having to walk, they gave me some granola and they gave me some milk and I thought that was amazing. They were shark finning. You know, so imagine me, I'm emaciated, I am starving. I don't support shark finning. Like that is one of the worst things to ever happen in man, you know, on this planet to me where you see it, you know, but and shark finning is 100% illegal in Mexico. And I don't want to throw these fishermen under the bus because they were so friendly to me. They were so nice. And let's be real, they probably have families that they have to support. Yes, what they're doing is illegal. That sucks. And it was heartbreaking to see. But when you're starving, do you even, is that even a thought process? I don't know. But, you know, the fear factor thing um, with Baja, like, for example, my family, you know, the last words my mom told me before I crossed the border to come into Baja, she was like, I just want to let you know, Sean, I'm not paying your ransom. And it's like, (laughs) you know, but that's my whole family. I'm the only one that really travels around the world and, it's just, um, you know, let, like, let's be real. I land yesterday, I land at LAX. And the first thing I hear about is a shooting at a nightclub in Colorado. It's like, dude, what country is more dangerous right now? Is it Mexico or is it the United States even? So I have experienced nothing but generosity. My biggest fear in, you know, biggest danger is myself and making the wrong decision, doubting yourself, especially in a scenario where you turn around you see El Norte coming because when these winds happen, it's not like you get a five mile an hour breeze, then a 10, then a 15. It's a wall of white caps coming at you like orcs marching on Helm's Deep. And that's the only way I can describe it. It is incredible. And you have to make a decision at that point because you're like, you're looking down the coast. There's no beach to land. Like, what do you do? You know, you have to just make that decision and, and hope it, it works out. And, and when you're, in a state where you're exhausted because you paddled 20 miles yesterday, you're tired, you're sore, you kind of didn't sleep well because you overexerted yourself. You're already not in the best mental health situation to make a good decision. So it's like you have to make that decision at the right time. And of course, that's when the the hammerhead shark shows up. That's when the seal comes out of nowhere and and starts barking at you from five feet away, making you jump out of your skin. And you lose your spare paddle like, oh, that's that's fantastic. Exactly. And then that's when you capsize in the El Norte winds because 40 knots hit you like with like a baseball bat. Um, I found that crying and swearing and shouting into the wind didn't help. It it feels good, though, though, you know, like you get it out of your system. But I I screamed into the wind probably five or six times. And um, and I always apologize after because I was like, all right, Baja, you didn't deserve that. You you know, um, a TV show I grew up watching was Survivor Man, you know, Les Stroud. And he has a great statement about Mother Nature. It's just like, she's not for you. She's not against you. She just is, you know, and it's like, and that's what I keep reminding myself. It's like Baja is not trying to do this to me on purpose. Baja is just doing Baja. You know, it's supposed to be windy. It's supposed to be rugged. These animals are wild. This coastline is rugged. You know, and the the Mexicans are friendly, not all of them. Some of them can be very questionable, but it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. I knew going into this trip, I thought the biggest danger for me was going to be the locals. And I can't believe I thought that because they have been my absolute saving grace. They've been amazing. And I, they're probably going to continue to be, 
And I will continue going to Baja for the rest of my life because of the people. So it's just, you know, my biggest danger is myself, is my mind. And I have to learn to meditate through the, the weaknesses, step into that fear instead of running away from it. And, um, you know, keep taking those baby steps forward because eventually it'll hit, it'll take me a Cabo. Awesome, Sean. Uh, I'm looking forward to, to following your journeys in the couple of minutes that we have left. I just really want to hype that element of on a solo paddle, for me at least, what I learn is humanity. Uh, after paddling uh, across uh, the, the mud flats of the former Colorado River uh, Delta. That's incredible, by the way. I mean, I quit there, too. Like, my mom dropped yeah. me off in, in, in uh, Golfo on the mainland, El Golfo. And 100 miles later, I was like, nope. Three days later, it took me three days to go 100 miles in a kayak. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't land. I was yeah. literally eight hours one morning just lying on the mud waiting for the tide to come back. But anyway, so I quit there, too. That was my first time I quit in Baja. But it was Halloween. And oh, wow. There were kids running around and asking for candy and giving candy. And everybody was bright and joyful. The, the best thing that could come out of a ex, uh, solo expedition, according to me, is you learn how to appreciate people better. And, and hopefully you start to appreciate yourself better. I've struggled with liking myself for a lot of years in my life. And solo, solo paddling hasn't helped, I don't think. Uh, other than the fact that now as I age, I just turned 50, I really appreciate the company of other people, their perspectives, their stories, their narratives. One of the things I advise you to do is just go to a, a bar or a coffee shop or a restaurant and just listen to what people have to say. <laughs> you, you told me that on the phone when I called you in Santa Rosalia. You're like, dude, store your board. Just get on a bus and go somewhere and just sit down in a, in a live park, you know, and just like, and I love that because that's, I did do that. You know, I, I went to Loretto, I walked to Malacone, which Malacone in Spanish is just like the boardwalk next to the sea kind of thing. And, and I watched a triathlon happen, you know, and I was like, look at these, for lack of a better word, excuse my language, but look at these badasses just going for it. You know, like I haven't done something like that. And it was just cool to just sit, talk, see what these people did. And, and, you know, during that 17 mile day where I 17, you know, day stretch where I had no connection. I had my GPS that I sent my one message to a friend back here who she was tracking my progress and making sure I was safe and she knew exactly where I was. But the second I got to service, it was just like, I was craving connection more so than I ever have been. And I'm someone that's always, I'll crawl into my own shell and I'll just bury my head and I'll just do my work. And, you know, people piss me off sometimes. Like I need to, I, I'm a very solo person. Like I just, you know, I, I stay in my head sometimes. And this trip is actually the first time I've literally craved connection. And um, that's a big reason why I'm here. It's like I needed to hug my aunt. I needed, yeah. to, I needed to just go to the beach and watch these young kids go surfing at my local surf spot. And, you know, I can't wait to start sending the emails because I want that connection with my editors and the organizations I'm working with on this trip and just you know, I want to talk to those strangers, too, that are just inspired by the trip and, and the people that inspire me, like you and other people that have done things that have been like, oh, my God, look what this person did. So this trip is has been amazing and I'm looking forward to part two, but I definitely crave connectivity more so than I ever have on any of my long expeditions. You know, I did six months on the Pacific Crest Trail 
I didn't I didn't crave connectivity on that trail like I'm craving connectivity on this. Well, that trail's busy. Paddle. You're going to see people every day. It was it was a social thing. You could be as lonely as you wanted to be or you could be a party animal and have fun every day. Um but you know, you get what I'm trying to say though. Sure. It's just you know, I I was out there. There's definitely the most out there I've ever been was this first part and I know that there's going to be some parts in you know, chapter 2 here that are going to be very very lonely and very very rough, but um I'm also looking forward to the fact that it is more developed and I'm going to be able to spend more time in these communities, meet these fishermen and, and even the people that are doing awesome things in Baja. Like so many people take motorbikes, bicycles, you know, sea kayakers, sailing, sailboats have helped me on this trip. I oh, actually yeah. got water from a sailboat. You know, it was incredible. Um, I'll never forget that crew. So it's just, you know, I'm just craving connectivity and, and yeah, Paul, if you want to join me for, parts of part two let's talk about it man i'm game oh yeah i'm excited <laughs> or anyone listening man or anyone like let's let's talk about it dude because i you know i don't want this to be a selfish endeavor of me just going down the coast i want i would love community to be part of it to be rad well said well articulated brother again i'm looking forward to, to following your adventures don't get too soft in la don't get too bitter with uh, the the road rage I'm you already start over. feeling like the middle <laughs> finger coming up. It's time to get back down to Baja on Baja time. Well, as soon as Baja lets me, man, I'm going to head right back down. And, um, you know, I, yeah, I'm already going crazy at day one. So I, I have a strong faith that I have no issues going right back down there. <laughs> well, as they say in the river, you've eddied out. And, and eddy out is a time where you're on the river. You're still on the water, but uh, you're, you're slowing yourself down. You're pacing yourself. You're reevaluating. You're collecting gear. So you've eddied out on this, uh, this expedition that you're on uh, to Cabo on the Sea of Cortez via paddleboard. Well done, brother. I can't wait to, to talk to you more. Yeah, I appreciate it, Paul. And, and thank you for inviting me on here. It was a pleasure to, pleasure to sit down and, and have my very first podcast ever. Hell yeah. Uh, and new to the, the Instagram live format, um, the audio will never be the best and the video certainly isn't, but uh, it, uh, it's, it's a great way to have more engagement immediately. So all the people who are watching and like my buddy Mark uh, Cascadian says, uh, travel safely, believe in yourself, very inspiring. With that, we're going to end this episode of the Paul podcast. Thanks, Sean. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. See ya. Bye. Bye. Bye.